Hello there. We hope this finds you well, despite the uncertainty of the times we've all been living in. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to our podcast. This is our 12th episode already, and that feels pretty good. It has been such a joy to create these episodes from scratch. The research, the sound design, the music, re-recording the parts where my accent got a bit overwhelming. And it has proven to be a truly inspiring collaboration between Johnny and myself and has hopefully been enlightening or at least thought-provoking and entertaining to you, our listeners. We couldn't do it without you. If you like what we do here and are willing and able to contribute to the cause, we would really appreciate your support by either spreading the word, by following, reviewing and sharing our links with your friends and family, or by signing up to become one of our gracious and benevolent Patreon supporters. You can find all of our links in the episode description. As you'll soon hear, this 12th episode is a sort of meta-episode where we discuss the meaning of public philosophy, its various forms and its potential for the future. And after this, we've decided to press pause for a little while to reflect on our work here, apply for grants and gather funding, hopefully, to continue growing, as well as visit our families for a bit before tuning back in with you in the fall. Thanks again for listening and we hope you enjoy. Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust, and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. In this episode, we'll talk about the very thing that we try to promote with this podcast, namely what we might call public philosophy. We'll dive straight into our topic here without an introductory text. I've been hearing a lot that in the last decade, or the last decades even, there has been a resurgence of interest for public philosophy. I hear that it might be due to socio-economical conjecture, the recession, for instance, issue around healthcare or environmental preoccupations. And indeed, public philosophy can be defined as a democratic and accessible engagement that cultivates the public's philosophical habits of mind regarding matters relevant to action beyond educational institution. There is a need for insightful debate, but actually maybe not only about public matters or matters of public interest. I would start by saying that there is an ambiguity in the very expression of public philosophy, which sounds somehow like public restrooms to me, so it's already a problematic expression, but there is an ambiguity at the core here. At the same time, it is referring to a way of thinking focused on the public interest, 
And I would say that this sense of public philosophy is actually the less common. But in another sense, it's also an activity where an intellectual expresses herself or himself in a way that is meant to be accessible to the large public. So doing philosophy with general audiences in a non-academic setting. And the focus of this expression doesn't have to be on matters of general public concern. Now, how can we satisfy this demand? What forms does this supposed democratic demand or interest for philosophical questions take? Which groups of people among what we call the general public are really seeking philosophy? So this episode is really kind of a mise en abyme or a meta episode about what I'm doing with, among other things, this podcast. And I am far from being the only one trying to do that. I actually invited a guest for today's episode, Barry Lamb, who is the executive producer and host for Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. We'll get back to that later. Public philosophy can take many forms, such as podcasts like this one, or Barry's, writing for newspapers, for general audience, delivering radio addresses, hosting symposia open to the public. But it can also take the form of programs that bring philosophy to places where people don't actively seek it. Schools, prisons are some examples we might think of. That leads me to my first question. Does any place or context, any group also of participants, allow for philosophical inquiry to actually take place? Public philosophy projects or programs have to be appropriate for the participants. In certain environments, such as prisons, instructors are confronted to complex vulnerabilities. I do think that learning to philosophize might be empowering and that philosophical dialogue in prisons can help developing trusting relationships between the participants and can even maybe play a role in encouraging personal exploration, self-reflection, development of new interests and skills among prisoners. It can encourage participants to be more open to hearing different points of view, more willing to critically reflect on their own ways of thinking. These beautiful ideas, though, do not always face a reality that allows for them to be actualized. I actually was involved as a volunteer for the People Education Initiative, formerly called the Prison Education Initiative. It was in the Rose Center, the female jail on Rikers Island. And I do remember an extremely stimulating class in which we actually picked the question, what is it to be a woman? I wanted to avoid just the lecture, you know, format of a class, and I just wanted us to discuss philosophical questions. And I made them, you know, I made the inmates basically choose the question that they wanted to work on. So that question that day was, what is it to be a woman? And it was so animated that the security guards ended up joining, not because it got out of control, but because the debate grew in a very insightful, passionate way about motherhood and transsexuality and transgender issues. And I did feel that the participants enjoyed the intellectual climate, the challenge, the exchange of opinions, the philosophical reflection around sexual and gender identity. Almost all participants were actively joining the discussion. But even then, the power dynamics, not only between guards and inmates, but among inmates themselves, never left the room entirely. 
the conversation became easily and quite quickly adversarial, sometimes heated in a way that was not exactly fruitful for philosophical discussion. Maybe if the class I was teaching was meant to provide an educational degree, which wasn't the case, maybe also if the inmates could commit in the longer term to classes, which was not the case as they usually are housed there for short terms while they await trial, perhaps then there would have been more empathy for the various perspectives from each participant And perhaps this type of education would have more of a real impact on prison culture. This philosophical debate class I was conducting often actually ended up in a conversation about issues either surrounding the physical threat of prison, the risk of being beaten up, physically intimidated, raped or even murdered, or narratives about traumatic life experiences before the incarceration. How can a constant state of suspicion, distrust, boredom, stagnation, poor living conditions, emotional distress, also due to the distance and isolation from family and friends on the outside, how can those conditions provide the mental space or availability to think about philosophical problems, to engage in philosophical inquiry? When facing such an immense loss of autonomy and agency, as inmates do, how can we have a rational discussion about what freedom, happiness, morality or desire mean? Because you do want to pick subject matters that are significant to the participants' perspectives to spark their interest, but by doing this you always risk to trigger an emotional response that largely overflows from philosophical discourse. I remember actually my first class when I had written various philosophical questions we could discuss, the class voted for, is it always bad to lie? And it ended up in a long monologue from one of the inmates who felt terribly wronged by a system that lied about what she had done. As an instructor, what are you to do? To interrupt such an intimate confession, to bring the conversation back to, well, okay, but aren't there situations in which one might think that it can be okay or even good to lie? This kind of Socratic dialogue that I wanted to implement in class required for me to entirely reshape the way I used to teach. You have to ask yourself a lot of questions, among which, of course, what is the goal here? Am I to provide a mental escape from everyday worries by encouraging the contemplation of ideas for the sake of it? Or am I to help the inmates psychologically by developing critical thinking skills that somehow makes them cope with prison life, reduce maybe violence and intimidation? How can philosophical instruction do that? Is it even meant to do that at all? What is the relevance of this type of education to prisoners' psychological well-being? Maybe philosophy has no place in an environment like prison. Maybe a minimal mental availability and peace of mind is required as a necessary condition for philosophical inquiry, a mental state that prison doesn't really offer. So let's look now at places and audiences more commonly referred to when we speak about public philosophy places and audiences more suitable for that philosophical questioning. 
Now, in these places, for these audiences who voluntarily come, say, to a talk or a philosophical event, such as the Night of Philosophy in the Brooklyn Public Library, there is still the question of both the actual relevance and the feasibility of public philosophy. We have to see what exactly this demand is made of, or this request from people interested in philosophy is made of. What do people have in mind when they hear philosophy? Do people really want to do philosophy, or is there a misinterpretation about what philosophy does and can deliver? Some people might think that philosophy is going to make them wiser or happier or give them answers, ready-made smart opinions about what is going on in the world. They want a direct effect on their life, maybe, a utility. I actually remember giving a talk on happiness at the Strand Bookstore in front of an audience starving for life-coaching advices, which was not really what I intended to deliver. I am not a life coach, I do philosophy. So that has to do with the type of content that is sometimes expected. But the main question, I would say, has to do actually with the format, the feasibility, again, of public philosophy. How can we do good, accessible public philosophy without betraying what philosophy is? Some public intellectuals may or may not be affiliated with universities, Journalists, publishers, writers, artists, politicians, officials, they may work for think tanks. They are not specifically trained in a philosophical academic way. And that might raise the issue of the level of expertise or the reliability of the methodology that these people might use, which can be questionable. But the opposite problem is what concerns me most. If public philosophy is only about expert-driven and unidirectional teaching, from philosopher up top to an audience down there, to the masses in the vertical way, then it goes back to be an elitist or non-democratic practice, such as the one we find in most university colloquia or conferences. If we accept the verticality or the asymmetry of the relationship between the philosopher and the audience, then we often also subscribe to an idea of expertise that very often rhymes with ultra-specialization. Expert philosophy then remains restricted to the elite, to people belonging to the small circles who debate each other in their discipline's jargon. And I do think the philosopher cannot be exclusively seen as the expert who simply delivers truth to his or her audience. There are obviously things to learn from people who have no background whatsoever in philosophy, who cannot be seen just as passive listeners or receivers of information. There can be philosophy in every kind of experience. That's what Barry Lamb tries to say in Hi-Fi Nation, where he really turns narrative or experiences, just life experiences, from people who are not philosophers into philosophical ideas. John Dewey, an American philosopher, psychologist, and educational reformer, perceived well the risk of ultra-specialization. He says, I quote, a certain degree of specialization is a necessity for scientific advance, but with every increase of specialization, remoteness from common and public affairs also increases. Including the greater public in philosophical inquiry is difficult, 
And scholars actually rarely succeed in disseminating accessible lessons learned from their research. And there is the potential for losing sight of the real problems people face in life and in the public sphere, rendering scholarship and scientific study not only inaccessible, but also irrelevant to people beyond the academia. Certain philosophers might actually argue that public or engaged or applied philosophy is a corruption of the discipline, that true philosophy has to be abstracted from the murkiness and biases of real life. I hear that because I do hear the immense difficulty of the popularizing task, But then instead of giving up, I still believe that we do need to work to alleviate the remoteness of scholarship and to instigate that desire for critical thinking in order to offer as much as we can the benefits of philosophical thinking for refining public discourse and opinions. John Lacks, another philosopher who also promotes more accessibility and relevance of philosophical discourse for the wider audience, comes up with reasons for raising expectations for philosophers with regards to public engagement. He says that scholars in university settings enjoy a special privilege. We are enormously lucky to have access to rich resources in terms of research databases, libraries, colleagues, travel funds to go meet with people who can help us refine our ideas. Scholars not only have opportunities to contribute to intellectual leadership, they have an obligation to do it. John Knox concedes that, I quote, if encouraging intellectuals to engage in public debate does not work, we may have to make it mandatory. As part of the job description of thinkers, writers and scientists, such participation would become a matter of habit. To get things going, we might have to impose the obligation that each intellectual undertake two or three critical sizes a year. That may seem radical, but at the same time, see attorneys who must devote a certain portion of their yearly work to pro bono cases. Here John Lacks is saying something similar. Noam Chomsky, who wrote a text called Philosophers and Public Philosophy, wrote in 68 that philosophers, I quote, may be in a somewhat more fortunate position than many professionals. There is no profession that can claim with greater authenticity that its concern is the intellectual culture of the society or that it possesses the tools for the analysis of ideology and the critique of social knowledge and its use. If it is correct to regard the American and world crisis as in part a cultural one, then philosophical analysis may have a definite contribution to make. End quote. What contribution? How? Well, broadly, philosophy can make people progress regarding the clarity of statement and argument, the awareness of the rich connotations of words and their power, the recognition of fallacies, tricks of persuasion that everyone so commonly engages in or fall prey to, in order to be able to find limits between abusive authorities and real legitimacy of certain experts. Philosophy helps us reconstruct the psychological genealogy of bias, assumptions, inconsistencies, why and how the mind uses unsound arguments and intellectual tricks, 
It can also help us debunk ideologies, economic, political ideologies, for instance. Philosophical education and practice can also help restore a sense of intellectual honesty and humility. We need not only to accept being wrong, but to welcome the possibility of it. Scholars bear a profound obligation to contribute to the intellectual guidance of public culture. They not necessarily have an obligation to speak about public matters, but if they fail to fulfill that obligation, it would both leave potential unfulfilled and represent a form of negligence of one's intellectual duty. Beyond personal value, there is a political and social usefulness of philosophy, and public philosophers should work to make philosophy more inclusive and representative of various publics. By reaching out to the wider audience, public philosophers are re-evaluating the power of philosophy on a large, inclusive scale, in democratic terms. Critical thinking, which is at the core of philosophy, cannot only be the privilege or the prerogative of a self-fed elite stuck up there in its ivory tower. Because the stakes here are not only pedagogical nor personal, but ultimately political. Now, are these goals or contributions of philosophical practice mentioned earlier to be met in front of any audience? No, let's face reality. As I said earlier, if you speak about prison, for instance, you know, you're not facing the same audience as the audience you're facing, let's say, in the public symposium. The general public is not an homogeneous audience. And doing public philosophy demands constant linguistic readaptation to the targeted audience. Let's not be hypocritical. Some people are not only absolutely indifferent to philosophical inquiry, when you are preoccupied by mere economical survival, for instance, but also they are not armed for it at all. There is a Socratic myth that philosophy would be accessible to all, and it is not the case today. We still need to work heavily on that. Critical thinking calls for a persistent effort. It requires a radical conversion of the mind, a constant struggle against our natural tendencies to build our opinions, values and beliefs. But also it requires an availability to think conceptually and rationally. In order for public philosophy in the broader capacity to take place and to make sense, we need to be developing mental dispositions and attitudes of intelligent inquiry in schools, in public schools already. Against the heavy standardized testing that goes on in public schools, we have to consider making inroads into elementary education where we could and should create already that intellectual curiosity that appetite for critical thinking. Now still, encouraging critical thinking in middle and high public schools, let's say, will not guarantee that everyone will grow a desire for questioning or desire for logical analysis. And adult education, for people who don't spontaneously go to public philosophy talks, is still worth it. But it requires skills that could and should be taught beforehand.
fostering in all people the habits, abilities, and attitudes of mind that render them interested in and capable of engaging in public philosophical activity together is a great ideal, but it needs to be confronted with the heavy reality of a widespread intellectual misery, often due to a very poor public educational system. But let's now turn to a discussion with Barry about the future of public philosophy and the concerns that can be raised about the way academia shapes the discipline. So, hi, Barry Lam. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, you received your BA in philosophy and English at the University of California, Irvine, in 2001. Then your PhD in philosophy at Princeton University in 2007. Today, you are an associate professor of philosophy at Vassar College. So you have a brilliant academic career. But also, aside from that career, you are the creator of a great podcast that truly inspired me called Hi-Fi Nation. So I just wanted to ask you, why did you decide to start a podcast for a general audience? And what are you trying to do or what are you trying to do with this podcast? I really loved the genre of nonfiction that was, in many sense, journalistic, storytelling, narrative-based. And I noticed that people were starting to do that in the audio space with other academic or academic-adjacent fields, like the social sciences, psychology, economics, even the brain sciences. And I really thought that there's no reason why philosophy shouldn't be in the mix there, or any other humanities for that matter, because there is a rich tradition in philosophy that is more than just a philosopher stating a view and making some arguments for it. And, and, uh, and, and the reach of the narrative form, I was very impressed with as well. Mm. So that's why I did it. I wanted to essentially expand a genre into philosophy in particular for the sake of reaching the kind of people that aren't independently philosophy hobbyists or even think about that term as such, right? Most, mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of people don't go into thinking that they want to learn about um, cognitive psychology, but sometimes they might listen to a show that talks about a specific human being who, just to use an example, is blind and had to learn how to echolocate his way through the world. And as a result, you know, became a study for cognitive psychologists on how the senses work. Well, that was the kind of thing that I wanted to make for philosophy for people who, you know, don't think about, think of themselves as independent hobbyists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if, uh, you know, if I'm uh, right to assume so, I think that this is a kind of a process that comes from the public philosophy, you know, excitement that I think we both share. That's right. So if you, would you try to define for me public philosophy? Because I have the impression that there is an ambiguity in the phrase. And I would like to, to see if maybe we agree on that. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I, I've, I've read a lot of 
people who have tried to give a definition. The way I think about it is it's just public philosophy is just the um, the outcome of philosophizing when your target audience isn't people in the academy. Um, and that's how I think about it. So, And the outcome could be anything. The outcome could be you writing something. Most philosophers just consider themselves writers of some form or another. But the outcome of it could be talking to somebody. The outcome of it could be um, it could be activism. It could be the outcome could be a public policy thing. The outcome mm. could the outcome could be a lot of different things. But it's philosophical thinking in where the target is not just um, other academics. And by academics, I mean other philosophers, but also other people within the academy. So your mm. graduate students, your peers in other fields. I think of public philosophy as aimed at people who are not already in the academy. Yeah. So this is, I think, actually in your answer, I see the ambiguity already where I share your general definition of public philosophy as just a I would say, an outreach towards people who are not specifically, you know, in that academic field already and in that elite, really, because that is an intellectual elite. But at the same time, you say that it can have actual uh, political outcome or some kind of uh, political involvement, right? And the question I have for you here is, do you think philosophers should be or have to be more politically involved by, for instance, engaging in public philosophy and discussing in high-impact media their view on the problems that the world is facing? I don't think everyone has to be. I think that there are, just like in any other field and any other part of human, <laughs> human endeavors, there are people who are, would, it would be a service to the world if they did. And other people where it would be a huge disservice to the world if they became more <laughs> politically involved. And this is not just true of philosophers. It's true of scientists. It's true of chefs, even. Like, there might be some great mm. chefs, some of which whose involvement in uh, food and nutrition would both be beneficial and required of them because they happen to have a set of skills that make them great and could do a lot of good. And then there are other mm. people who would be just absolutely awful. And I could think of, I mean, Gene, you, you probably know this too. There, there, there are probably a good dozen, probably as many philosophers we might know that would just be god-awful if they decided to enter into political involvement, maybe because they have bad politics, but maybe also because they're, you know, they're... They're, they're just hopeless at that kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I don't think everybody, I don't think everybody ought to. Um, as, a, as a generic of the field, I think that it's important for some people to, just like I think it's important for anybody in any field to um, engage politically when it both suits them and when it does more good than them not doing it. And that and again, I think this is true of people in people who are chefs and people who are scientists. So so I don't I'm not univocal. I like as a generic on the field, I think politic philosophy could do better. And 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 quite frankly, sometimes I see people, and I'm not going to name any names, but they feel the normative pull of doing philosophy that's more politically engaged. And they fall flat on their face. Mm. And sometimes it's 
can be even embarrassing to the field. <laughs> so, so I don't want to name names about that, but so when I see that, I, I I think yo no, I don't I don't think it's required of everybody. I think it's required of some people in the field, but those people are kind of nameless at this point. You know, mm. um, people who are good at it and people who are who can contribute positively and people who contribute negatively, please don't please go back to academia and like for, you know, keep, keep yourself from harming the world with your, you know, shitty political engagement. Fair enough. It's just uh, to me a way that I just remember sometimes conversation when I said that I do philosophy, not even when I say that I try to do public philosophy, but just philosophy. There is kind of this, uh, this guilt trip that is sometimes induced by conversation I have with friends or even my parents. I remember my dad telling me like, oh, you know, you should definitely, you know, be, have something to say because you're a philosopher. Therefore, you have some kind of civic duty to actually bring more good to this world. And I'm like, do I actually, as a philosopher, have a duty to see that? Because I always perceived philosophy initially when I started this discipline as more of a poetic and contemplative activity, more than an activist activity. But so I just, that's why I was basically asking the question. And I, I do agree with you, some people are better off sticking to their uh, academic guns. And just speaking about public philosophy and the challenges of the task, what would you say are the challenges that you potentially have faced as a public philosopher? Oh, the challenges that I face, probably the challenges that anybody faced that wants to do this is keeping it up when none of the institutional incentives permit it or encourage it. That's got to be the biggest challenge. Um, you don't get paid for this work. You don't get promoted for this work. Mm -hmm. And if you spend too much time doing it in lieu of the kind of things that you do get paid and promoted for, um, a lot of which is bullshit work, <laughs> um, then you can suffer in terms of your career or your salary or, or your reputation or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. Another big challenge, of course, um, and the second biggest challenge is actually making people care. I mean, like the whole point of me doing this the way that I've done it I, I haven't made a show that's a bunch of philosophers sitting around talking about philosophy. Like That's just not the kind of show that I make. Mm. Um, I make a show that tries to go out into the world and find some people who have experiences that are particularly interesting philosophically mm. uh, and, those, and, and then to have philosophers talk about the philosophy that accompanies experiences of that kind, mm. right? And I'm doing that with the aim of bringing philosophy to the people who care about those kinds of human experiences. They want to listen to, a, hear about the experiences and realize that philosophers have something to say about it. Mm. Reaching people, reaching a big enough audience for that is a big challenge mm. because the term, I mean, you're from France, so the term of philosophy has a kind of esteem associated with it. And the term philosophy in America does not have that esteem. If anything, it's kind of like a, It's just something other people do somewhere, <laughs> right? And it's it, it's like I mean I, I feel like the same way Americans feel. I think Americans feel this way about the term poetry. Use the word poetry, mm. right? Um, it's not a particularly valued thing, poetry in, in the mm. U.S., right? Even amongst elite institutions, there are, you know, we like poets in some way, but 
the idea right. that poetry is valued in this country is just, it's just false. It just isn't. Yeah, I'm trying to, I never thought about that. I, I'm trying to picture why, maybe because also in France, the fact that philosophy is actually part of the public school curriculum in high school, everybody at some point in their life, if they went up to high school at least, has touched upon philosophical education. So maybe that makes it more accessible, which is a point I make actually about the the relevance of public philosophy, maybe it would be more relevant if there would already be some kind of education within middle school even, or high school at least, uh, to educate uh, the vast majority of people in public schools, so accessible for all at that level, for then triggering that interest and also giving the skills and the vocabulary to be even able to approach those topics, right? And so that's also, I guess, uh, one of the challenges that we are definitely facing. But to come back to the first challenge that you talk about, and namely the fact that institutionally, the, you know, the academic world does not really recognize this work and does not really implement in what university has to offer that public philosophic facet. And uh, I wanted to know what your perspective about the way academia shapes the philosophical discipline today in the U.S. at least. Uh, academia is... Academia rewards the expert. Yeah. And academia rewards specialists rather than generalists. Mm -hmm. Public philosophy rewards more generalists than they do specialists. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's reversed that way. Uh, the, all of the institutional incentives, incentives within academia um, promote the very good specialists at the cost of generalists. Very few generalists are hired anymore. Very few generalists are awarded. Um, very few generalists um, are published. Um, even things that are called generalist journals publish very good specialist work. And that's a big structural issue mm -hmm. that separate that 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 where academia will sooner um hopefully this will change but academia will sooner award fellowships promotions for somebody who has the most original book on an obscure um <laughs> pythagorean thinker of 526 BC, right? Then they would somebody who helps to tie everything together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's what it is. And, you know, that's not going to change very much, I don't think. Mm. Unless, you know, the only way that's going to change is if it changes from, you know, academia runs on the prestige economy, not the actual economy. So mm -hmm. in the humanities, at least, you don't get promoted and hired based on how much monetary worth you bring in. Mm -hmm. It's based on reputational capital, mm -hmm. right? How, how much other people who are doing similar things hold you to esteem. And that's going to, that's an incentive system that's going to reward the specialists. And unless that changes, it's not that it can't change. It, these are human beings. Human beings can decide that that's not what they're going to do and they're not going to do it. But as long as that's, um, not, not going to change, then academia is going to um, become more and more specialized and philosophy is going to look like it's it's not something that any individual can do. More and more remote. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I just want to, you know, uh, discuss now maybe the other projects that you might have that can be related to making philosophy accessible to a larger audience. I know that you are the associate director of the Mark Sanders Foundation. Can you tell us a bit more about this project you also have that relates to public philosophy? Oh, sure. The Mark Sanders Foundation is a public charity that was started by an individual, Mark Sanders. Mark Sanders was a very successful business person who, you know, he's a manufacturer, it had nothing to do with philosophy, but throughout his whole life, he was interested in metaphysics and the role of, you know, religion, um, religious metaphysics in the world generally. Um, he was one of these people who wrote an enormous tome on his own. And um, and when he passed away, he left um, his money to start this public charity. And mm. um, his son, Eric Sanders, took over. And the goal of the charity is to, you know, fund philosophy in some form or another. And in the beginning, um, the Sanders Foundation funded uh, work in traditional philosophical-ish topics, metaphysics, philosophy of religion, epistemology, so forth, for uh, early career scholars. So people who are in graduate school or within 15 years of their PhD. And in more recent years, um, it's been funding uh, diversity initiatives in philosophy. So to bring more women in, to bring for more minorities in, to spread philosophy to um, younger people. and more recently, an initiative that I helped start at the foundation, um, we are looking to fund um, people who have roots in academia, though they could be still in academia. Um, we, are, we would like to fund them to help develop skills where they can publish or release material in the public sphere. So popular magazines, newspapers, podcasts, public radio, public television, things like that. So, I mean, I could, I might as well announce it here because it'll be out by the time this podcast is released, but we are um, teaming up with the Templeton Foundation to fund um, 30 people, um, 30 people out there who um, are trained in philosophy, but would like to write mm -hmm. or podcast or make things for um, the broader media. It's called the Philosophy in the Media Initiative. Um, 10 people will be selected for op-eds, 10 people will be selected for magazine writing, 10 people will be selected for podcasts. It comes with a $1,500 stipend and an exclusive workshop with media professionals, like really high up media professionals. So an op-ed editor at the New York Times, um, editors at the New Yorker magazine, and people from NPR, This American Life, um, um, for podcasting. Right. And these are weekend workshops um, and 30 people will be selected for this. And basically, we'll just pay you. Right. You'll go to this workshop that's very exclusive. And then in the hopes that coming out of it, you'll want to start publishing. Um, so we're doing that. And um, that initiative is out. And anybody who's listening to this and anybody out there who wants to apply there, it's going to be due the end of September. So Good to know. <laughs> yeah. No, very good to just preaching the good word out there. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's an interesting demarche to instead of actually reaching out 
directly to a wider audience, which can be challenging because you don't even know where to begin sometimes, better sometimes reach out to the philosophers themselves and force them to get out of their comfort zone somehow to then get them to play the public philosophical game. Yeah. And get them connected to people in the media. Like, exactly. well, that's one of the things people don't know. Like, So part, most of this initiative, it's the workshops and it's like, okay, we're going to connect you to the media professionals. Right. Right. So now you could pitch them and eventually, hopefully a magazine article will uh, will be out there. Yeah, just uh, so many mediums, platforms that we could be using instead of the traditional, you know, writing essays that nobody reads. So yeah, right. absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad about that. I definitely look into it. And um, just as my last question, I just wanted to know, aside from everything we've been discussing so far, if you think just like that top of your head about what avenues public philosophy could possibly take and philosophy education in general, by the way, it could be taking in the future? Oh, wow. You know what I've seen from the ground up is people whose skills are in teaching deciding that they want to start kindergarten through 12th grade programs for uh, in philosophy. And they take, those take various forms. Some people are going into schools once a week. Some people are having a summer camp. Um, there's a lot of people who want to do this. What they need is funding to do it, mm, right? Mm. Um, but but there's, a, there's enough people, I've seen enough grant applications or people with ideas like that. There's a lot of people who want to take philosophy into prisons. There's a lot of people who want to take philosophy into nursing homes and retirement homes mm -hmm. and hospitals and things like that. So those are, so that's on the teaching side. It's already out there. I'd like to see funding agencies, you know, Like learn from France, <laughs> and we can't mandate that it's in the curriculum. But at least if somebody's offering it, mm. you can provide the money so to give it to people. And then um, from the media side, the people who are making stuff, there's there's a lot of things that, that are out there. And I think that what I would like to see is I would like to see philosophers humble themselves a little bit and recognize that there are other forms of writing and other styles of writing of which they, if they contribute their expertise to, while also not thinking that they have to write like a philosopher to do that, mm -hmm. um, because it's hugely fulfilling. And also it's just, it, it scratches the itch of us keep wanting to keep learning. Yeah. And if you're rigid and you think that you have, you know, uh, a corner on the, on the market for, good philosophical writing, you don't, right? So I would like to see philosophers, you know, I would like them to re-engage the dialogue form, for instance. I would mm. like them to engage literary nonfiction, mm. um, start doing things like that. Um, mm. So th on that side, that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, then just like you do with Hi-Fi Nation, using the narratives yeah. to, uh, yeah, and, and maybe... Yeah, teach, maybe that's also, we speak about how philosophers teach, well, the way it should be taught, maybe that discipline, but also how maybe we should train philosophers, right? Maybe within academia also having the possibility for more training on pedagogical skills and what can be used in order to spark an interest in people, which is not something that is really well done. And it's just like some people... You know, you get your PhD in philosophy, you might be a great expert, be able to write, you know, amazing articles in that very normative way of writing articles, right? But that doesn't make you a great communicator and, you know, a person that can have that dialogue, as you say, not only this kind of vertical lecturing position, but also dialogue with the people whose stories 
could definitely be a great material to explore, to do yeah. philosophy, right? Yeah. Even the interlocutor, the form that we're trained in, in just talking to somebody is incredibly narrow, right? It is find something that you think is wrong with what somebody is saying and then like point out to them that it's wrong or something. Like that's sort of how we're trained to talk to each other, yeah. right? And that's not how you talk to other people. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, we have been too long remote, I would say, from yeah. the real world. So thank you for your insights here and let's keep our hopes up for the future of public philosophy in all sorts of media, with all sorts of funding. It was great to have you on our podcast. Thanks for taking the time. All right, let's stay in touch. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? A podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. If you want to listen to other episodes, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us. You can also support us on Patreon. Contributions on our Patreon page would help us continue producing this podcast without ads and develop our project in innovative directions. So thank you for supporting us to whatever extent you can. You can find the link to our Patreon page in the episode description. Patreon.com slash can you feel it? P-H-I-L. Can you feel it? Also, if you enjoyed this episode or other previous ones, do spread the word. You can leave us a review and a rating, which makes a difference by helping others find us. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast, as well as composing all of the music. Stay tuned for the next episode.